0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Robert traveled all over the world. As a sports editor for the London Evening News... His job brought him to different countries where he enjoyed seeing various sights, sounds, and sports. Most of all, he loved meeting new people from different cultures, especially when he was asked to cover the Olympics. For him, covering the Olympics wasn't just a job, but it was an honor to see the world unite as one and celebrate humanity at our best. This year, much to his excitement, he was again asked to cover the Olympics. He packed his bags and set off on another great experience. When he got to his hotel, he met up with his colleagues and started to tour the Olympic Village, walked around the different areas that they will visit, and got to know what the public felt about hosting the events. Robert met a lot of locals who were enthusiastic about the Games and proud to host the entire event. The people want the Games to go well and show the world what their country has to offer. While the host country was busy preparing for the Games, a portion of the population was gathering to protest. The protest was not entirely about the Olympics, but the political unrest has been simmering for quite a while, even before the Olympics became the government's focus. It was 10 days before the opening ceremony, and Robert found himself around town. He's heard about the demonstrations and decided to check it out. Maybe there's a story to it, or perhaps it wouldn't be anything significant. He and other members of the media made their way to the city square. They were met by thousands of people, local to the host country, gathered to make their voices heard. Robert did notice that most of the people were young, possibly college-aged, and despite the number of people, the atmosphere was peaceful and orderly. But in a matter of minutes, the simmer turned into a raging boil. Later on, when Robert looks back to that day, he will say that it was the most terrifying night of his life. You're listening to Untimely, a podcast about events from earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I am your host, Lynn. Since its inception, the Olympic Games has had its moments of highs and lows. Visiting countries waved their flags in pride and honor, and host countries welcomed the entire world as their countries put on one of the biggest stages of athleticism and competition. On the other hand, the political aspect of the Olympics does create an atmosphere of tension and ambivalence. In today's episode of Untimely, we'll revisit the events leading up to the 1968 Olympic Games held in the country of Mexico. In the 60th International Olympic Committee session in West Germany, The committee was about to announce their selection for the host city of the 1968 Summer Olympics. The cities fighting for the honor were Detroit from the United States, Lyon from France, Buenos Aires from Argentina, and Mexico City from Mexico. Representatives of these cities were present during the announcement on October 18, 1963. The committee then happily selected the honor goes to Mexico City. This announcement became many firsts, the first games to be hosted in a Latin American country and the first Spanish-speaking country to receive the honor. This was also the first time that East and West Germany competed as separate countries. But the games were littered with controversy even before it started. After World War II, the country of Mexico experienced economic growth and strength under the control of Partido Revolucionario Institucional, or PRI. The PRI was the dominant political party in the country established in 1929. In the 1960s, the peso was stable and external debt was at an all-time low, which made Mexico one of the fastest-developing countries in the world. But many, including university students, felt that the economic growth was not spread evenly and there were other changes needed to make things even better. As the elite of Mexico society enjoyed growth and upward gains, there was little that can be afforded by the poor and unemployed, especially in rural areas. In a university survey in 1967, Mexico's population was 47 million, about 5 million had no access to basic resources and 11 million were considered illiterate. When Mexico made a bid for the 1968 Summer Olympics and eventually won, the government saw an opportunity to sustain its economic growth. The Olympics will showcase the country through global networks and media coverage. This, in turn, will bring investors, which will create jobs and strengthen development further. But to host the Games properly, infrastructure will need to be built to accommodate the International Committee's requirements the government, led by then-President Gustavo Diaz Ordaz, decided to use what they have available, public funding. The investment was around $150 million, equal to about $1 billion in today's money. Everyone in Ordaz's cabinet agreed to use the funds, including the finance minister, but a portion of the public did not. The main reason for the opposition is that the government should prioritize its own people's needs before spending money on the Olympic Games and funding can be raised in the private sector. The opposing protesters were mainly made up of university students who had a fair amount of clashes in the past with the government. One instance happened in 1966 at the University of Michoacan in Morelia. Students were protesting the increase in bus fare, which was relatively low-key in comparison to more massive demonstrations in other areas of the country. Instead of letting the state handle the protesters, President Diaz Ordaz intervened under the guise that the demonstrators were acting as communists influenced by a foreign power, obviously entirely unfounded. The face-off between federal police and protesters resulted in one student shot to death. Things escalated from there, and many students were arrested or expelled. A similar incident happened on another campus, University of Sonora. President Diaz Ordaz magnified his authority by making threats to other universities in a speech. Neither claims of social and intellectual rank, nor economic position, nor age, nor profession, nor occupation grants anyone immunity. I must repeat, no one has rights against Mexico. The government's oppression of student demonstrations added fuel to the fire. But while the threats remained students continued to mobilize and gather strength in numbers. On a global level, similar protests were held by university students in other countries, including the United States, Japan, Italy, France, and Argentina. The student protesters from Mexico were not alone. On July 22nd and 23rd of 1968, after a football game, several fights between rival schools ignited an already volatile environment. The schools involved were from two different sides of the economic scale, one a vocational school, while the other was a college preparatory school. The Special Police Corps of Grenadiers, or riot police, were sent to break up the fight, but instead of calming everyone down, the Grenadiers resorted to violence. The students turned their frustrations toward the Grenadiers, and for many hours, both sides fought and battled. Later, it was found out, that the Grenadiers were paid 30 pesos, which is equal to about $3, for every student that they physically hurt and arrested. When the news of this unnecessary and fatal violence spread, the anger and resentment escalated even further. University students from different states and areas united against this repression and protested the government's improper handling of the event. In response to this violent means, Two demonstrations were held on July 26. The first demonstration was a call to action in support of the students of the vocational school affected by the violence, while the other demonstration was to remember the 15th anniversary of the Mancara Barracks assault in Cuba in 1952. Eventually, these two demonstrations crossed paths and joined together as they marched to the center square of Zocalo in Mexico City. Once the group started to settle and made their way to the center, the mounted police barred everyone from entering the square. When the protesters were refused entrance, they continued their protests and over the next few days, rioted on the city streets and hastily set fire to empty buses. The riot police responded in kind, which resulted in hundreds of injured protesters and more hauled to jail. At one point, demonstrators fled from the police and hid inside, the San Ildefonso Preparatory School in the area. Eventually, an official made the call and launched a bazooka to blast through the school's door. On a side note, the door blasted by the unnecessary artillery was made of wood and have been in the school since the 18th century. The government felt justified, stating that protests were backed up and organized by Mexico's Communist Party, which obviously was not true. Even without evidence, the Attorney General issued warrants against anyone who was linked to the protests, making them political prisoners without cause. This injustice aggravated the situation even further. The rector of one of the universities, Javier Barros Silva, publicly criticized the government for using heavy-handed responses to lawful student protests and unlawful arrests of innocent people. To prove that students were not violent offenders or would have never provoked the right police or were organized by communists, the rector led a march through Zucalo, with thousands behind him chanting, Unete Pueblo, or people, join us. This march started and ended without incident. It was a successful showing of a united student body and a blow to the government's actions. After the protest led by the rector, The student protesters from different universities linked up and formed the National Strike Council to organize more demonstrations and present their demands to the government as one. About 70 universities and preparatory schools joined the movement in solidarity. Despite rivalries and long-time animosity within the schools, This democratic union of student bodies agreed to set aside differences to put an end to the government's reign of injustice and terror. What's impressive about this movement was the student group's ability to organize quickly and secure equality among its members. About 240 delegates from different schools met to organize protests and to promote social, economic, and political reform. Women were equally represented as well the council organized themselves in brigadas, or groups of six, who distributed paraphernalia to advocate their cause in every possible avenue available. They boarded buses, had public speeches, and influenced the public. Their persistence paid off, and support from outside the council gained traction. One of their demands was the resignation of President Diaz Ordaz, who at this point has had enough. With the Olympic Games starting in about a month, He wanted all demonstrations stopped by all means necessary. On September 13th, the president ordered the army to occupy the National Autonomous University of Mexico, one of the universities heavily involved in the council and previous protests. Although the military never once fired a bullet, many students, whether they were a part of the council or not, were beaten and arrested. As you can imagine, this decision by the president to interfere did not quell the protests, but made it even stronger. Weeks before the start of the 19th Olympiad, the media, athletes, and the International Olympic Committee arrived in Mexico City. The streets were flushed with Olympic pride, with the easily recognizable five rings seen in every corner of the city. The world had descended on Mexico City to celebrate. It was October 2, 1968 the council organized a rally in Latilolco, an area of cultural and archaeological significance for the country of Mexico. The council chose the Plaza de las Tres Culturas, or Square of the Three Cultures, as the location. The square sits on the top of an ancient Aztec temple, and to its side is the Santiago de Latilolco, a Catholic church built in the 1600s. On the other side is a massive residential complex built four years earlier. At the start of the protest, there were about 15,000 people, but slowly decreased in number in the afternoon. Around 5 o'clock, an estimated 5,000 people made up of protest leaders, council members, students, and the supporting public, including women and children from the residential complex were in attendance. Later as more people assembled in the plaza, They were joined by members of the electrical union, petrol employees, and phone operators. Basically, the working class and the student bodies converged to rally their causes. The makeshift stage, which was a balcony three floors up the complex, called the Chihuahua Building, was occupied by speakers and protest leaders. There were several journalists with their cameramen, equipment in tow, in and around the crowd to document what was happening. Among the media in attendance was John Rada from The Guardian and Robert Trevor from The London Times. Throughout the protest, attendees listened to engaging speeches, roaring with patriotic ardor and enthusiastic energy for reform. Chants of, No queremos olimpiadas, queremos revolución, translated as, We do not want the Olympics, we want a revolution echoed loudly in the square. Aside from the demand to remove President Diaz Ordaz and the PRI in power, their demands were the following. First, repeal of Articles 145 and 145B of the Penal Code, which sanctioned imprisonment of anyone attending meetings of three or more people deemed to threaten public order. Second, dismantle the Grenadiers, the tactical police force who executed violence in previous protests. Third, immediate release of political prisoners fourth dismissal of the chief of police and the deputy and five bring justice to officials who sanctioned the violence from previous protests as the rally continued protest leaders noticed that slowly flanking their sides were members of the military in full tactical gear and artillery popping up in small increments The Minister of Interior, Luis Echeverria Alvarez, was put in charge of the situation by President Diaz Ordaz. More speeches rallied the attendees who continued to demand reform. Up to this point, the rally and those in attendance were calm and orderly. Between 45 to 50 minutes after the speeches started, the sound of blades spinning in the air began to drown out the crowd's chants. The noise started to get louder and louder as two helicopters came closer and closer to the square. The crowd noticed but paid little attention. The helicopters hovered above the crowd for about a minute or two when suddenly a green flare dropped from one of the helicopters down to the ground. Then a red flash dropped from the other, then another, and another until the flare surrounded the square and crowd, Boxing in the thousands of people inside. The crowd started to take notice, and panic followed and replaced the once enthusiastic spirit that maintained order. The council members and speakers pled to the crowd to settle down and tried to calm down the now agitated public. What the council did not realize or account for was the intense desire of their government to stop the protests at all costs and ensure that the Olympic Games go on without any problems. Echeverria Alvarez deployed the Olympia Battalion, a top-secret police force composed of military personnel, state police, and federal security agents whose primary purpose was to provide security for the Olympic Games. On the day of the protest, the Olympia Battalion executed Operation Galeana, a security task campaign mapped out in response to a possible shooting scenario during the games. There were about 5,000 members of the battalion present on October 2nd. When the helicopters released the flares, this was the sign for the battalion to take action. The mission was to dissolve the protest and arrest the leaders of the council. Shortly after the flares hit the ground, a gunshot disturbed the peace and sparked the chaos that immediately ensued. The shot was followed by a barrage of gunfire from automatic weapons and military rifles. Tankettes surrounded the square, making it impossible for the crowd to exit and avoid getting shot. Apparently, this was one of the strategies of the operation, to guarantee that all exits are sealed so no one can leave and evade arrest. The horrific sound of guns firing and the crowd screaming in terror filled the air. Members of the battalion wore white gloves to separate themselves from the crowd. People scrambled everywhere they can, but for the battalion, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Bodies fell and started to pile up. While the killings continued and some of the crowd ran away, a few members of the battalion waved their arms as a signal to the rest of the force to storm the ground and grab as many attendees as possible. The enforcers not only fired on unarmed civilians, but, also beat them in clubs, kidnapped some of the leaders, and moved them away to be questioned, arrested, and subsequently tortured. People from the ground saw armed forces on the top of the church and balconies of the residential buildings with their weapons pointed down on the ground where the protest attendees dropped in mass. Bodies were scattered everywhere, and blood sprayed the walls and stained the ground. The bombardment of bullets and tear gas continued for two hours. Residents of the complex tried to flee but were also fired upon by the military. Some kind-hearted people let students inside their homes to hide. Some captured students were lined up with their hands flat on the wall and legs spread apart. Battalion members also ordered attendees to go inside the church and told everyone to lay down and face the ground. One of the journalists, Robert Trevor, was able to get away using side streets. He, and another reported, twisted and turned every which way they can to avoid being shot or get caught in the stampede. Once they got out of the square and stepped on the city's main road, Paseo de la Reforma, it was like stumbling out of a parallel universe. The main thoroughfare, much to their surprise, was normal. No screaming public, no gunshots, and people walked without care, oblivious to the massacre happening in the square just a few blocks away. By then, the day turned into night, and the dark sky cloaked the bodies on the ground. The square, once energized by peaceful protests, was eerily quiet. From time to time, gunfire was heard, and the sound of an ambulance followed. The sounds of truck engines and screeching brakes driving in and out of the plaza never stopped until dawn. The operation, led by the armed forces, continued through the night. Members of the battalion went door-to-door inside the residential complex and surrounding neighborhoods, looking for college-age kids to kidnap and torture. The government shut off electricity in the area and cut off the phone lines as well. Around 2,000 people were arrested and brought to the Lecomberi Jail. For many, it was the longest and most terrifying night of their lives. From dusk until dawn, bodies were removed and taken to unknown locations buried in mass graves. The next day, the square was cleared out and little evidence of what happened remained. The government-run newspaper, El Dia, ran a front-page story with the headline, Criminal Provocation at the Latelolco Meeting Causes Terrible Bloodshed. Basically, the news reported the government's official story that communists were in attendance in the protests and made the first shot at the police, which caused the authorities to respond in kind. The police commissioner held a press conference and stated that 24 people were killed, many of whom were students, including seven policemen, all because of gunfire provoked by the Communist Party. But obviously, Those who were actually in the square that night, including foreign journalists like Robert Trevor and John Rod, reported the truth based on their own experiences. Instead of 24, like the government said, the two reporters estimated about 300 to 500 dead from gunshots, both accidental and on purpose, fired by the battalion as ordered by Ordaz Diaz and Echeverria Alvarez. Their stories made headline news in their respective countries But the outrage did not affect Mexico at all. Robert Trevor recalls meeting a local woman a few days after the event to look for her son, who she thought was in attendance at the square. The mother reached out to the police but was turned away because she had no clear evidence that her son was even at the protest. She never knew what happened to her son. Elena Poniatowska, a local journalist, Heard about this event and went to the plaza to seek out eyewitnesses. She interviewed many survivors and bystanders and documented their stories. Elena met women who had the same plight as the one Robert Trevor met, searching for their children who never came home. She noticed that although there were no dead bodies, unmatched shoes and bloodstains can be seen strewn about. She also documented interviews from former prisoners from the protests. Elena also met Italian journalist Oriana Falacci, who was on the ground that day. Falacci was shot three times and left for dead, but was brought to a local hospital and lived to tell her tale. Falacci called the Italian parliament and demanded a boycott of the games as she saw soldiers shooting point-blank at civilians. Despite all the evidence and accounts, The Mexican government denied any direct involvement in the massacre and placed the blame on the Communist Party. But what was even more surprising was the response from the International Olympics Committee. Despite the horror of the events on October 2nd, the IOC decided that the Games will go on. And when the Olympic flame was lit, those who were dead, wounded, tortured and missing were forgotten and buried under the spectacle of the 19th Olympiad. The number of deaths remain unknown. In 1971, Elena Poniatowska published her book titled La Noche de La known as the massacre at La But even with a published book and other articles written by those who were there, nothing came out of it. For decades, no one was prosecuted or brought to justice. Those who were killed or lost were never named only the ones they left behind to mourn their absence. In 1969, Diaz Ordaz feigned responsibility for the events of October 2nd, which enabled the new president to take over, none other than Luis Echeverria Alvarez. He remained in power for six years, and Diaz Ordaz, even though he claimed responsibility, was never prosecuted. Pressure from survivors and families continued in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to find out what happened. In 1998, then-President Ernesto Zedillo approved a congressional investigation of the tragedy. But the ruling party, the PRI, blocked the investigation and did not relent to the official report. The same year, Kate Doyle, an American senior analyst from the National Security Archive, reviewed declassified U.S. documents on the Latilolco massacre. Her investigation was released on the event's 30th anniversary, highlighting the concerns of the U.S. government about the security around the games and how the Mexican government handled the student protests. In the year 2000, a new era in the fight for political power in Mexico began. The PRI ended its 70-year reign and welcomed President Vicente Fox of the National Action Party. One of his actions as a president was to investigate and finally answer the 30-year questions that families and, and survivors had about what happened on October 2nd. He authorized the release of any documents related to the military presence at the square. Reports and official videos were found that supported Elena Poniatowska's book, as well as the articles by John Rada and Robert Trevor. In the video... You can clearly see that the first shot was executed by strategically placed snipers on the balcony of the Chihuahua building, where the protests were held outside. It is important to note that the snipers were a part of the Presidential National Guard, which further proves the involvement of Diaz Ordaz. There were no communists present in the crowd. It was clear that it was the government who instigated the massacre. The consensus of the number of deaths from the investigation, archives, testimonies, and other official documents was between 300 and 400. Kate Doyle successfully helped in naming at least 44 people who died that day. By 2006, the only living member of the Diaz Ordaz cabinet was Luis Echeverria Alvarez. At first he was arrested by the prosecution on charges of homicide but because of the 30-year statute of limitations it was dropped he was then charged with genocide which did not carry any statutes however 3 years later the charges were again dropped a tribunal of circuit court judges ruled that there was not enough evidence to support the direct involvement of Echeverria Alvarez he was set free and lives in mexico city as of the release of this podcast the 1968 olympics had other controversies and highlights this was the stage where u.s athletes tommy smith and john carlos took a stand for civil rights by raising their gloved fists up high as they stood on the podium after winning gold and bronze respectively for the 200 meter men's race this iconic photo and stance against oppression known as the Black Power Salute, was seen as a political move by the IOC and deemed unbecoming of an Olympic athlete. The two runners were ultimately banned in the Olympic Games for life. Unfortunately, this was not the last Olympics where public rallies, protests, controversies, and deaths will occur. On December 2008, the Mexican Senate officially declared October 2nd as a national day of mourning. On the 40th anniversary of the massacre, thousands of students rallied in memory of those who suffered, who were killed, and never found. Around 40,000 marchers walked to significant sites where protests were held in 1968, including Zocalo and the Plaza. Multiple memorials were built to remember the events of October 2nd, One such monument stands on the south side of the Plaza de las Tres Culturas. Engraved on the monument is a stanza from the poem written by Mexican poet Rosario Castellanos. Translated in English by David Bowles, the last stanza reads, I remember, we remember. This is our way of helping the light shine. Upon so many sullied consciences, upon a wrathful text on open bars— Upon the face obscured behind the mask, I remember, we remember, until we feel justice at least here among us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. Let me know what you think of this episode. I will post direct links to the videos released to the public for your reference. Fair warning, the footage is graphic and depicts violent acts. Please use your discretion when viewing the video. If you learned something new today and enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Also, share the podcast with your friends and family. Don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at untimelypodcast. We'd love to hear from you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office.